The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, so I made a pot of coffee this morning without putting any grounds in the coffee maker. So I got a pot of hot water. So my, my day is going to get a lot better. Uh, I don't know how that bodes for uh, this sermon, but uh, it can't get worse than the way my, my day started. Uh, that's a sad thing to come downstairs to. Um, I, we're going to look at the text that, that Matt just read from Acts 17. Uh, if you're with us, uh, if you've been with us, we are in a series called Missionary Stories. Let me go ahead and invite the ushers forward as they uh, collect our giving and as you turn your attention there. If you're new, if you've got the TCC app, you can go and find some uh, message notes that will guide our, our discussion uh, this morning. And uh, as we give, uh, I want to orient our hearts as we normally do to God's mission uh, around the world. And this should be fairly easy for us to do considering our teaching series this summer is on missionary stories. Uh, as we think and consider the work of the early apostles, founders of the church in the book of Acts and the spread of the church in the book of Acts. And really what we're asking you to consider is what is your missionary story? How's God pressing you to live a life that's strategically on mission? And I was thinking as we were singing these songs, the real hope of the songs that we're singing leading us into God's word this morning is the fact that God is a missionary God. Like everything that we just sung suggests to us that our lives are hopeless and helpless apart from Christ and that God, seeing our great need, sent Christ as a missionary God, sent Christ to incarnate himself in this sin-drenched world such that we could be saved, that we could know God. So any missionary story that we write with our lives is a derivative, is derived from the great missionary story that God's written in our lives. Like, if we're in Christ, we've been the recipient of mission, and therefore, we're the agent of mission. We want to live our lives in such a way that we're making the world better, that we are declaring the gospel, that we're seeing people come to faith in Christ, that those who are in relationship with us are pointed to Jesus, built up and established, that our lives have meaning and purpose in a very real way that's storing up treasure in heaven and not treasure on this earth. And so then as a church, what we want to do is kind of get behind your missionary activity. So we, we just want to make it easier. So what we hope is like you can invite somebody on Sunday morning and be like, hey, come, come hang out with my friends. Like, it's, it's not super weird. Uh, they, they love Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. They're singing, and that this place would be real comfortable for you to invite people. We're going to do some activities like the door hanger that you have in front of you this uh, night at the water park. We've got uh, Otter Creek reserved for two hours, uh, Thursday night in August, uh, totally free. And uh, so, you know, I kind of joked with some volunteers this morning, like, I know a lot of parents that don't love water parks, but I don't know many kids that don't love water parks. And free water park for the kids, like, seems to me like a real easy way for you to to say, hey, neighbor that I've had over to the house a couple of times, like, can your kids come with us that night and just play at the water park for a couple hours? What we don't want to do is just do an event to entertain the people of our church. That's insufficient. But what we'd love to do is do an event such that it kind of leverages your missionary story and makes it easier for you to invest and invite people. So what I'm going to ask you to do, take one of these. If you do old school door hanger 
by all means, do old school door hanger. Uh, I would encourage you to accompany this with a, with a word of invitation. Like, n- n- don't do the uh, uh, drop and dash version of this, okay? So invite somebody, and perhaps even a better approach, just take a picture of this or find the social media thing and kind of share it out to people that you come in contact with and invite people to join us at the water park uh, that night as we continue the work of our missionary stories. Join me as we pray for that event and for the work that God's doing among us today. Father, we do bow, recognizing in your kindness you have written a missionary story in this world. You did, did not have to do that. Like you, you did not have to pursue us. You, you did not have to save any of us in this room that are in Christ. Uh, that the fact that we can sing songs celebrating your goodness, that we can recognize your spirit in us, that we can open your word, that we can read it, that it can press in on our lives. Like, all of that is an example of the fact that you're pursuing us. And we give you great thanks for that. Thank you that the pursuit doesn't stop. Like, you're continually after us throughout our lives. And that this morning is an example of that. And we pray that as a response to that, kind of in the wake of the missionary story of God, that we could live lives that matter. That we could write our own missionary stories in a way that's meaningful, uh, meaningful investment of the fleeting days that you have given us. And I pray that as we consider your word this morning and as we leverage our own missionary lives to invite people to join us in that pursuit, that you would see fit to bring great fruit for Christ's glory. We ask it in his name. Amen. Unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people, rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge. I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony, and there the Lord conquered my unbelief. I surrendered myself to God for his service. I told him that all the responsibility as to the issues and consequences rest with him, that as his servant, it was mine to obey and to follow him. His to direct, to care for, and to guide me, and those who might labor within me. Need I say that peace at once flowed into my burdened heart. There and then I asked him for 24 fellow workers, two for each of the 11 island provinces, which were without a missionary, and two for Mongolia. And writing the petition on the margin of my Bible I had with me, I returned home with a heart enjoying rest such as it had been a stranger to for many months. These are the words of Hudson Taylor recorded in his journal on Sunday morning, June 25th, 1865. Taylor's life went on to become a spearhead of God's missionary activity in China and in many ways ushered in what we consider to be the modern missionary movement, an exemplar of courage and risk and a life of passion poured out for Christ. Taylor, perhaps more than any other missionary, followed in the wake of the one who he said became flesh, took on flesh to become one of us, decided that his life in order to reach this population for whom he was drastically different, would embed itself in the culture, would become Chinese in a very real way, such that those to whom he was reaching would have an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. I'll mention several examples of this. First, in his dress, 
Taylor shaved his head and put on the traditional Chinese garb in his journal, writing that the Chinese dress, in taking on the Chinese dress, the foreigner, though he would still be recognized as such, escaped the mobbing and crowding to which in many places his own costume would subject him. And in his preaching, while his dress would attract less notice, his words would get more notice. Not only in his dress, but in the food that he chose to partake of, both in what he ate and in the way that he prepared and cooked these dishes, Taylor became overall Chinese in his enjoyment of meals. In accommodations, not only him, but others of those who joined him in his work to reach the Chinese in the very port places where accommodations for foreigners would be common, Taylor said, my missionaries and myself, we will not live in these accommodations, but rather we're going to go inland, hence China, inland missionaries. We're going to go inland and establish ourselves in the accommodations of the Chinese. In their customs, he instructed prospective candidates in this manner. He said, husbands and wives seeking to engage in mission can't walk together arm in arm. They can't even walk separately, may they be unattended. And walking out among the Chinese, persons of both sexes will have to adopt the slow, orderly, sedate gait of the educated natives. Otherwise, they're going to lose influence and be thought ill-brought-up, unmannerly, and ignorant. Perhaps the height of his taking on Chinese culture was his learning of the language itself. He became conversant in four dialects of Chinese, such that he had the ability on the fly in his preaching and teaching to translate the New Testament into these various dialects in such a way that the language he used would be romanticized such that it would be sticky to those who could not read the text for themselves. He forced those who joined him on these missionary initiatives to become conversant in Confucius and the Chinese heritage and history that shaped the landscape of his day. In Chinese medicine, Taylor spurned the opportunities for Western medicine choosing instead to leverage learning about the medicinal practices of the culture in which he was embedded and leverage those rather than other tools that he thought might actually be more useful, but rather in an effort to become one among the host culture. He purchased ingredients and practiced Chinese medicine, studying in their academic books about ways that would minister to them. In summary, he wrote this in his journal after years of ministry. If we really desire to see the Chinese, such as we have described, let us as far as possible set before them a correct example. Let us in everything unsinful become Chinese, that by all things we may save some. Let us adopt their custom, acquire their language, study and imitate their habits, and approximate to their diet as far as health and constitution will allow. Let us live in their houses, making no unnecessary alterations in external appearance, and only so far modifying internal arrangement as attention to health and efficiency for work absolutely require. What would motivate someone to live a missionary story that was that particular about embedding themselves himself in the culture that he was called to reach? This is our theme from Acts 17. 
as we consider Paul's work and his famous speech to the Athenians on Mars Hill. We've seen at the end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas parting ways, being sent on these missionary journeys, specifically disagreeing on whether they're going to take John Mark with them on this expedition. And, and this disagreement, though, it, though it's tragic, uh, actually sends out two missionary teams. So they split ways, and they're going to varying places, declaring the gospel. They revisit some churches, pick up Timothy, and take them along. As we saw last week, the Spirit prompts them to go to Macedonia, the beginnings of the work in Europe. They begin witnessing in centers like Philippi, and there, if you're just scanning the text from 15, chapters 15 and 16, we see the conversion of Lydia. We see, again, a theme that's repeated in the early chapters of Acts. Those who are proclaiming the gospel are locked up, put in prison. The Spirit miraculously overpowers the guards. We see the Philippian jailer converted, leading to his whole household converted. And this pattern of the movement of God miraculous demonstrations of his power and the following of suffering, people being kind of run out of town. We see at the beginning of chapter 17, these early leaders establishing churches in Thessalonica and Berea, and because Paul tends to get the spear of the persecution that faces the people of God, he gets run out a bit earlier and finds himself in Athens waiting on Paul and Silas, these other missionaries, to join him. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts 17, verse 16, the text that Matt read a moment ago. And this morning's consideration of this passage, I want to give four big headers, four big lessons that we can learn about our own missionary stories from Paul's example in Acts 17. First thing I want us to consider is his passion that's worth emulating in our lives. His passion that's worth emulating. Secondly, a method that's worth applying. We'll spend our, most of our time on idea number two, a method worth applying. Thirdly, a message worth sharing. And fourthly, a response worth anticipating. A passion worth emulating, a practice worth applying, a message worth sharing, and a response worth anticipating. First, let's consider the idea of his passion that's worthy of our following. I'll read again from verse 16. Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Now some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him, and some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he's a preacher of foreign deities, because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching that you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling and hearing something new. It's like they anticipated modern-day social media, right? I mean, the, the culture doesn't move much in the last 2,000 years. People debating, discussing, this is happening in public, in the marketplace. And here Paul, waiting for Silas and Timothy, enter this context. And when Paul comes into the city, Luke describes that he is immediately deeply distressed. His spirit is provoked. And we're told what the nature of that distra what distressed him. He's distressed because he looks over a city that's just filled with idolatry. Like everywhere, 
people are worshiping all kinds of wacky things. They're worshiping things they don't even know, things that don't have a name. Tertullian, the, the, great, uh, the great historian, described Athens as an attic of idolatry, right? It's just where people put all their idols. So from household to the city streets to the main square, idolatry was everywhere. And here Paul, when he considers this, is distressed, deeply distressed. There, there's an anger and grief, a passion, that faces Paul as he encounters a world that is giving glory that is due God alone to anything else. His spirit is provoked. As I read that introduction this week, I think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, the famous words when looking over Jerusalem as he considers the context, Jesus is going around the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said the famous words to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Now, they are back at the beginning of verse 36. The, the, our English translates Jesus' emotion there as compassion. In our English, that's a real flat, weak word. The, the original text indicate like his inner parts are moved. We, we might say more conversationally, like he was just sick over it, right? It shaped him, and we know this experience, right? We see something, somebody with a diagnosis, something terrible happens to someone, fear of a medical appointment, and your, your, your insides are in turmoil because of a state of being that's not right. And what was the inner turmoil provoked by? People who were distressed and dejected. Here, recorded, Matthew says, like sheep without a shepherd, meaning they're as good as dead. And this makes Jesus sick. And in the very same way, in Acts 17, a city filled with idolatry so provokes Paul that he's deeply distressed by it. In other places, and I mentioned this text uh, a few weeks ago in Romans 9, to show the extent of his distress over people without Christ, he writes this in Romans 9, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters for my own flesh and blood. Now clear, here clearly he's speaking about his Jewish brothers and sisters. And he says, I'm so sorrowful, I'm so in anguish that those who should be so close, they've had all, all types of opportunity to see and experience the goodness of God and yet they will not trust in Christ. He says, I'd willingly give up my salvation if it would mean that they would receive, they would know they would come to faith. That is some kind of compassion. Well, what does it provoke the Apostle Paul to do here in our text? It provokes him to reason every day in the synagogues, in the marketplace. Luke mentions for us groups of philosophers that begin to debate him, that begin to mock him. Here he mentions Epicurean philosophers, Stoic philosophers, 
those uh, Epicureans, like thoroughgoing materialist. Life is merely what I can see, touch, and feel. There's no afterlife. God's not intervening in this world in any meaningful way. The key to life is mere detachment from materialism, an investment of a good life. And here, what Paul is saying, and we get, we get to double-click on it in a minute because he's going to testify to them, but whatever he's saying is provoking these sensibilities. You're sharing a really different message than what the great philosophers of the day. But what, what I want you to consider is what provokes him to do that? It is a deep passion for those who are apart from Christ, which then forces the question that I think drives any of our missionary stories. Are you sick over the plight of people without Jesus? Like, does that grip you? If not, you'll never spend your life investing and pouring yourself out for the sake of something beyond you. Are you grieved by the path of people apart from Christ, both in this life and in the next? Paul was, Jesus was, are you? Secondly, if you are, I think there is a method worthy of applying here in the text. This theme is probably from Acts 17, what gets the most attention and conversation. I'm not sure it's the most important idea in this passage, but it's certainly unique to what we see Paul doing in other places. Look in verse 22. Paul stood up in the middle of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance This I'm going to proclaim to you. Now look down in verse 28. He's explaining, beginning this idea, his testimony, his speech here before the people. And he says, speaking of creator God, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, what do we see Paul do in those two places, those two passages? He takes points of reference from the culture and builds on them or uses them as a beachhead to testify to the person and work of Jesus. He builds off the foundations that the culture has already established, at least in three ways. First thing he does, he says, hey, I I see that you're very religious, The thing that provokes him, that irritates him about the culture, he said, well, I mean, at at least this is testifying to the fact that people want to worship something. You got something going for you. You're setting up all these gods, so you are by doing this testifying to the human uh, desire to worship something. And then he says, hey, I was walking around and I saw there's an inscription to an unknown god, right? So just trying to appease the plethora of gods, here's what it seems that the people are doing. We've got statues to all the gods. We've got everything set up. And in case we missed one, we're just going to put out a statue and we'll just say to the unknown one. So we don't tick any deity off that we didn't get in all of these other ones. And Paul says, hey, if you're worshiping an unknown god, don't you want to know who that god is? 
So he takes this question that's resonating in the culture, and he says, well, let me fill in some gaps for you. If you've got an unknown God, I'll tell you who he actually is. And then thirdly, and really fascinating, he points to some poets in the culture. And he says, your own poets, I mean, the people who are writing your stuff, they're saying we are his offspring. Well, I actually also believe that we're his offspring. So let me tell you about the creator God who created us in his image. Let me tell you about what it means to be in in his offspring. So he takes a common point of reference in the culture, and he uses it as a beachhead for testifying to Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, we see a bit of Paul's motive for doing this, his desire to leverage whatever means or tools are available to give him opportunity to speak of Jesus. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 9. Although I am free from all, and I'm not anyone's slave, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win some people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one who is without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. You following him to this point, right? To win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. And then the famous summary statement, I've become all things to all people, so that by every possible means might save some. Now I do this because of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. This is a broad claim. Paul says, I've made myself a slave to all people. In the Mosaic Law, uh, Hebrews were required to, every seventh year, grant any Hebrew slaves freedom from their obligations to the house. But because of the care of the house, because of their love for their master, a slave could voluntarily commit himself to the master. And they would symbolize that by piercing their ears saying that I'm voluntarily putting myself subservient to this individual. Paul applies that principle here and says, I voluntarily made myself subservient to those that I am trying to reach such that God would save some of them. To the Jew, though I'm no longer bound to their rituals, their traditions, their ceremonies, I know that those things are not salvific in any way. They're not accomplishing for me my ultimate salvation. But if it means a beachhead for the gospel among the Jews, I am willing to take part in this such that I might proclaim Christ. An example of this would be our text from last week, having Timothy circumcised. Not obligatory on Timothy in any way, but a means of gospel mission among those he was trying to reach. To the Gentiles, I'm going to identify as closely as possible with Gentile customs. I'm going to eat what they eat. I'm going to go where they go. I'm going to dress as they dress. And again, notice the purpose clause here. So that I might win some. To the weak, to the strong, I'm going to become all things to all people. Let's consider that for a moment. What does this mean for us? Does it mean cultural intake with no boundaries of God's wisdom? Does it mean all things as all things? Well, I'm doing it so that I might win some. 
Let me suggest for you four questions to apply to the writing of your missionary story as you consider embedding yourself in our culture. The first question in regards to the decisions that you make to become all things to all people so that you might win some is this. Does the Bible establish a clear boundary on this practice? Adapt as much as possible in non-sinful ways for the sake of meaningful witness to those who are apart from Christ. Does the Bible present a clear boundary? What Paul is not suggesting here, clearly his life would indicate this, is that I'm going to indulge in sinful practice such that I might reach some. Secondly, and critically for us to consider, do my sin patterns, my previous life of sin, make this a wise choice for me? Does my practice in these cultural activities make this wise for me? Again, classic example would be hanging out at a bar for those who have struggled with drunkenness. May not be a wise choice for you to make, though you might argue that you have the freedom to do so because of the sinful patterns or trajectory of your life. Thirdly, and I think critically important from 1 Corinthians 9, what are my motives? What are my motives? We see in Acts 17 and in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's clear prioritization on winning people to faith in Jesus. So, am I genuinely doing this for the sake of gospel engagement, or is it just a way of rationalizing something that I want to do? Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says five times, my goal was to win others. Paul's life aim is love. He says in Galatians 5, you were called to freedom, brothers, but don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but what should our freedom produce? an opportunity to serve one another in love. Yes, you have great freedom in Christ, yet we're not leveraging that freedom to indulge in our own flesh, but rather in an effort to serve others. Here's a back-end question for you to ask about these practices. Does my practice of X, fill in the blank, intensify my passion for those who are apart from Christ, or does it diminish it? Does it detract from it? When I engage in this, when I go to this place, when I'm around these people, is it breaking my heart for lostness and intensifying my desire to speak clearly of Christ, or is it throwing water on that? And then uh, fourthly, fourth question, what's my level of engagement in this practice? What's my level of engagement in this practice? I I was... uh, at a church a couple of weeks ago, and I was having lunch, uh, and sitting next to a 12-year-old, <coughs> and he told me that he had just signed up for his first Smash Brothers tournament. I, I mean, I'm, I'm showing my car, I'm like, I'm like, I, 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 and I said to him out loud, I'm like, like, what's the question I should ask you that doesn't sound dumb right now? Because I have no, I don't, and he's not like Super Mario, like the current, I, I think so, like, so I mean, it, it, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing Fortnite, right? Like a $30 million prize on this next competition of some uh, video game. 
that I'm totally unfamiliar with. Now, being conversant, doing more than what I just awkwardly did there, being conversant in these cultural themes does not mean that I have to play Smash Brothers for six hours a day or spend endless hours vegging out on the latest Game of Thrones season. I can be conversant in the cultural themes of redemption and salvation without needlessly indulging in the cultural sinful practice in those endeavors. So what we're walking is the tension between not being isolated, head in the sand, weird, but not engaging in such a way that we lose our ability for distinctive witness in these cultural practices. So, does the Bible have clear boundaries? Do my sin patterns make this good for me? What are my motives? And what are, what's my level of engagement in this activity? I think Piper says it well here. My goal should be to overcome unnecessary, alienating differences that cut me off from unbelievers. Overcome unnecessary, alienating behaviors that cut me off from unbelievers. And then leveraging that cultural capital, notice what Paul does, thirdly, a message worth sharing. He says, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. For one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined the appointed times and their boundaries and where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that our divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked in the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man that he has appointed. And he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him, being Christ, from the dead. This is a great check for us, because notice what Paul does. He doesn't use his cultural engagement as a means of shirking from the truth of the gospel. He is bold, he is clear, he is Christ-centered in his proclamation. He says at least five things, and I won't uh, expound on these ideas, but just to mention them. There's one God who created all things. That God wants to be known. That God calls people to repent. That God is going to judge people through Christ. And that God proved he was God by raising Jesus. These are bold truth claims calling for an urgent response to final judgment because of the person and work of Jesus. This isn't a simplistic gospel presentation. He doesn't use cultural themes to cop out of real truth. But rather, he stands in the face of culture, answers the questions that it is asking, and critiques and challenges it through the lens of Jesus Christ. He understands how people think in order to better communicate the truth that he knows. Are you willing to do that kind of work to write a meaningful missionary story? Do you watch movies and engage in culture with that lens? What theme of redemption is present in this? Why is this song so popular? 
why are all my coworkers talking about this idea? If we really believe that all truth is God's truth, any cultural theme that is prevalent, that is pervasive, is merely stealing from the story of redemption. It's borrowing from it. So what we should be able to do is look at and say, that is either deviating from God's purposes and plans and creation, or that is pointing us to Christ. And friends, this is where stale gospel presentations take root. When we're able to say, I'm actually answering a question that you're already asking. You just don't know you're asking it and the answer that God has provided. Then lastly, quickly, a response worth anticipating. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. Others said, we'd like to hear you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed. This is the normative response to missionary stories. Some people are going to ridicule it. Some people are going to want to hear more. They're not convinced yet, but they're willing to engage in ongoing conversation. And some follow. I mean, this is stunning because we have testimony of those who are following being from these philosophers. I mean, these aren't people that haven't thought about these themes. So the fact that anybody would follow is testimony to the activity of God's Spirit. God leverages contextual missionary stories to point to Jesus, sow seeds of the gospel such that some come to faith in Jesus. And friends, this is what we're after with our lives as well. I want you to work back through that grid. Do I have a passion, that same passion? Does that passion spill over into the fact that I'm actually thinking about my practices such that I get better at this? I'm figuring out how to leverage songs and music and movies and culture in a way that's bending to Jesus. Thirdly, am I boldly testifying to Christ? And fourthly, Am I not living in the fear of man, knowing that people are going to reject this? But am I boldly testifying and trusting God's Spirit to work? Friends, let's let that kind of wash over us as a moment of meditation and prayer as we conclude the teaching this morning. Would you join me as we pray? As we do, as the band comes back to lead us to sing of the missionary story of God, his work in our world. Would you use the space here to pray for those you know who are apart from Christ but close to you? If you recognize in your heart a lack of passion for them, would you ask the Spirit to intensify your passion? If you recognize that you're passionate about people but you lack boldness, you're, you're like not speaking clearly about Jesus, would you ask the Spirit to intensify your courage? And if you recognize that man, you're, you're trying to live this thing, but people are rejecting you and, and, and mocking and ridiculing and walking away, and like you're cowering in fear, would you ask the Spirit to intensify your trust? And if you're here this morning and you, you can't lean into a missionary story because you've never received the grace of a missionary God. Would you use the space this morning to repent of your sins and place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who came to you in your sin-drenched reality and offered you forgiveness and freedom? God, we, we pray in that hope that you're a missionary God active and present in our lives. 
And we pray that you would, for all of us, like turn up the temperature on our missionary intentionality. Like, would we live with a desire to give ourselves away to other people, to declare Jesus and serve others in love? Would we use our freedom so that we could become a slave to all so that we might win some? Would that be the defining mark of your people here at Cherrydale until you return? We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.